Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hey Yeti, what's shaking? Yeah, I did see that Mechatel was crowdfunding on Kickstarter now. I love that book. I was in backer for the single issues myself. That whole creative team is great. I love Fernando Pinto's artwork, and it reminds me so much of hanging out with my friends in middle school and playing Nintendo, well, minus the giant mutant bugs from outer space swooping in and trying to take over part. Wait, you can make a transformation sound? Who knew? Yeah, that power gauntlet is cool. Whatever Derek touches can transform him into an alien annihilating mech. Even a hot dog cart, too. Too funny. Where can people go to back it? They can head on over to Kickstarter and search for Mechaton, M-E-C-H-A-T-O-N, or just check the show notes. I'll make it easy for them. It runs all of February, and it's awesome that everything is done and looks like a really quick turnaround for backers. And that exclusive Jason Muir cover is awesome. He's doing Spider-Man stuff now. Did you just really say Fuyo? You gotta get off TikTok, man. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner. I am one of your hosts, Jimmy Gasparro, and uh, I am very excited to talk to today's guests, who is not only a creator, a writer, um, a windsurfer, uh, a, a lecturer, and a barrister at law, which I can't wait to find out about. Uh, but coming from Ireland, uh, please welcome to the podcast, Gary Maloney. Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jimmy. I'm do- doing well. And I hope it's. Uh, I hope you've had your morning coffee at this point. Uh, it's, I, I, it's always strange when you have to organize interviews across different time zones. You don't know whether you should be having a pint or having a cup of coffee. So, Yeah, I, um, I, I would actually, I'd have both. It's nine in the morning here, but I do I, I do have my coffee, so I got that going for me, uh, which is nice. But uh, yeah, organizing things across time zones can can be difficult. But I'm glad we were able uh, to do this because I've wanted to talk to you before. Um, you know, in terms of your work with Limit Break Comics, and maybe we'll chat a little bit about that. You just had um, just closed submissions for the um, Wish Upon a Star anthology, which you, Limit Break Comics anthologies are just uh, are just phenomenal. Um, I love them all. Uh, turning roads and down below and fractured realms is the, 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 your third one. But today we're, we're really here to talk about, you have a new series coming out with mad cave studios and listeners of the podcast know how much I love mad cave. Uh, but, uh, it's with Daniel Romero, Becca Carey, when the blood has dried issue number one is coming out April 3rd. Uh, mad cave was kind enough to send over a review copy of issue one. And I loved it. Love the whole setup. Daniel Romero's like a revelation. Artwork is just he's tremendous. <laughs> like he's top quality guy. Like, and he, he's been like, he's been getting better, but like he was that good when I first started working with him. Uh, yeah, he, 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 he's brilliant and I love him to bits. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the issue looks amazing. I love the, the opening of it, kind of the setup, but you know, why don't you kind of tell listeners what's the, you know, the, the pitch for um, when the blood is dried? 
So the elevator pitch for When the Blood is Dried is very much looking at the epic fantasy through the lens of a spaghetti western. Like, I know it's a bit rote or trite to be talking about, oh, it's this meets this. But, you know, when in the kind of initial conception stages, I always looked at it as like, you know, oh, if you crossed Red Sonia with Logan and that, or Red Sonia with Unforgiven or something like that. Some the, that idea where there's the old retired adventurer or hero who's lived a life of violence and is starting to feel the weight of that. Uh, and we often see that in terms of, you know, the gunslinger in the Western or the superhero a lot of the times. But it's it's something that has been touched upon in the fantasy genre in terms of novels and stuff, but it was not something I'd ever seen in comics. And it very much came about from, it kind of hand in hand with becoming a comic creator. I also started to uh, play D&D with a group of friends. I'd moved to a new city. I'd moved from Cork to Dublin. And one of the kind of social events I had when I was kind of finding my feet was that a friend of mine who I knew invited me to start playing D&D with him. And I'd never been involved in anything like that or I'd never done any kind of role playing but through playing that and I'd always been a fan of fantasy as a genre and the epic fantasy going back to Lord of the Rings like I grew up when those films were coming out and had a big it was a renaissance for Lord of the Rings itself but fantasy in general the books became big there was video games there was the games workshop model games and things like that and like and I just drank that up as a as an eight nine year old kid when those films started to come out so I kind of really embraced fantasy genre. But over time, I kind of, you know, I didn't lose my love for it. But I, in terms of the classic high fantasy setting and the kind of setup, I became a, a bit estranged from it. You know, I was looking at more urban fantasy styles of things. But really, when I started playing D&D when, uh, in, when I moved to Dublin, that was really when I kind of rediscovered high fantasy and rediscovered, you know, my love for that. And at the same time, I was starting to do comic shorts. So then one of the kind of initial ideas or you know when i was playing DD, it was like well you know we're all you know we're all adventurers in inverted commas but like if we were being honest with ourselves you know we're we're sellsoids we're mercenaries we're doing whatever jobs are going and rarely in the context of a game like DD, do you stop to take stock of that and what it would mean and that's where the idea of like mixing the kind of the spaghetti western which focused so much on that uh, at its height the idea of the the older gunslinger who looks back on their life is trying to find a, a bit of peace, but wonders if they can actually really do that. I thought it'd be really, really interesting to look at how, how would you approach the fantasy hero if you looked at it from that perspective? And that's where Maeve, our main character in When the Blood Has Dried came from. Uh, the kind of, the initial inciting incident is that she has had a falling out of some sorts with her guild for reasons that we'll explore throughout the series but it leaves her being betrayed and left for dead and she ends up in the rural kind of peaceful town of Carrigan Vaughan uh, very much kind of based on kind of rural Irish villages that I grew up around and has set herself up nicely she's got a nice life she's she's running the local tavern uh, everything looks like it should be going well she's found that bit of peace and found somewhere she can you know, potentially die with a bit of dignity and respect for herself. But it all takes a turn in the first issue when her old guild come into town. And so everything that she's been trying to bury, that she's been trying to keep hidden from the townsfolk, really reawakens. And the series is about, can she keep 
that modicum of peace that she's built for herself? Can she be the person she has, she has tried to become over the five years since she left the guild? Or will this return of this influence in her life reawaken that darker side of her that she clearly wants to get away from? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, cult, the, the, the opening of it um, is, you know, very much in that fantasy, you know, fantasy genre, that, that realm that I think if, if you like fantasy, you're, you're going to be familiar with. And I, I don't know exactly when it was um, because I hadn't read too much about it beforehand. I just wanted to kind of go into issue one and, you know, see, see where it took me. And, um, and, I, and I like the idea of this meets that. I just think it's helpful to boil things down. But uh, I, I, I want to say, like, I, I'm not sure if it was the halfway point or maybe a little before it. I was getting kind of like Tombstone vibes, you know, like Wyatt Earp go, and his brothers go to a town to try and like start a business they leave their gunslinger ways behind them and like something finds them no matter what you know and um yeah and i i never i don't know i, I mean I, I guess there are some similarities between what we see in fantasy and 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 western but i don't know that i've ever you know can think of anything off the top of my head right now that kind of compares the two and i thought it just reading getting to the end of when the blood is dried i was like oh this makes this makes total sense um and i was just like yeah i can't wait for issue two uh i just thought the storytelling was um i mean both in terms of your writing and dialogue and the visuals on the page um it just it all came together so well um and, and becca carrie's also a fantastic letterer so uh well, really a fan fantastic creative team but i just i loved it i just want more but those scenes in that in the 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 tavern um i just when it all you you start to see mave's relationship with the town and with fergus and you know how she runs the place i i just thought it was great yeah yeah but that's something that's like so important to it as well in that you noted earlier on the kind of cold open we have and it's a it's a structure we're taking into the whole of the series and that each issue starts off with a little flash of the past, which kind of shows you how she ends up in that town. She goes from the end of her life with the guild to the start of her life in carrying the fun. And this mentor character who's alluded to in the first issue, Treylock, who we learn in the first issue has passed away. Uh, and in the opening cold, in those opening sections, we look back towards that and establish that. And always kind of juxtapose it where where she is now, but it, the book only really works as if you and I'm glad it seems to have worked. So thank 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 God it worked. Uh, if you can get a feel of like, well, why would she want to stay in this town? You know what that it's something she values and something she wants to keep. And if you don't get that in in the first issue, then the the rest of the the book doesn't work. But I'm glad it's it's working. And like as you said, the the art is phenomenal. Like Daniel Romero, he's someone who I worked with very early on in my comics career. When I, back in, I started seriously now, when I, I, I dabbled before, but like I seriously started to try making comics back in 2018. And that was like by doing short stories where I kind of made a commitment to myself, I'd do a four page or a month. I had managed to get some savings scraped together to be able to pay to hire a letterer, hire artists to do it. And one of the, la- and the idea was that I collect them for, collect however many I did in a year, I collect them and put them out and self-publish them. And one of the last ones I did was with Daniel Romero, who I'd met on a comic creators forum. 
and we just got on really well and his work was brilliant and we were always saying for years like we'll come back and we'll do something bigger together but he uh, he does a lot of work on the illustrations for RPG books you know tabletop RPG books or people or doing commissions for people if they want their their party or something represented okay. so one of the ideas I came to him was with this idea of the fantasy book and he immediately he was he was up for it and it took us a, a while to get it all together but no, like I was so glad that when it came to my one of my first books on the direct market that I was able to do it with someone who I'd worked with so early on and had we'd kind of come up together uh, and back Becca Carey Becca Carey is a friend of mine from from Ireland she's moved now at this point but uh, I, I was just really glad that we I was able to do with a team of people who I really really liked and loved working with. Was the short you did with Daniel before, was that in mixtape? Yeah, in mixtape. The very last story in mixtape is called Wishing You Were Here. And that was a, a story that came together uh, very late in the day. But I kind of had had space in it for one more story. And so I asked Daniel if he wanted to work on it with me. And I wanted to kind of do a crime story. Because at that point, I've written a lot of crime crime stories since then. But I hadn't really... The idea of mi- with mixtape, which was my first kind of collection of short stories, was to explore different genres and you know scratch different niches in that in that sense, and really just kind of see where I where I found myself best placed and where, what kind of stories I liked writing most. Uh, and I ha- hadn't done a straight up crime story in the book, and from having done a course in the Irish Writer Centre with Declan Shalvey, I'd really started to explore crime writing and finding I really enjoyed it. So that was one that that Daniel, that Daniel and I teamed up for, uh, with Joe Griffin coloring it at that point. Uh, and from that, we realized that we just really worked worked well together, and that we wanted to work again in future. And we always tried to to find places where we might be able to. So we did one or two other shorts elsewhere, uh, and we tried different other places. But we were we, we, when the blood has dried, it kind of all came together for us both because Daniel had started coloring his own work as well at that point. And it just pops like it just pop, like he's great when other people color him, but he's phenomenal when he colors himself. Yeah, the colors in the book, the colors in the cold open in particular, just are oh, gotcha. fantastic. Um, and the the panel that kind of does the transition from the cold open to the five years later story is uh, it, really well done. I did in, in particular, I really love that that panel. I don't want to give away too much. I want folks to get in and, and read it, mm. make sure. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know if I've, I'll have to go back to revisit that with a uh, mixtape, which um, for our listeners that don't know, I think ICN would name that best Irish anthology of 2018. They did. They, they did. Uh, <laughs> ICN uh, made rest in peace. The website itself uh, has shut down since. Yeah. But uh, that was a really gratifying thing that year to have uh, have my first book that I pushed out, my first self-published work, get it recognized like that from the community. Uh, and it's a very tight-knit community, the Irish comics community. So I, I was really, really delighted with that and for everyone, every one of the collaborators who I worked with on that book because there were so many people from across the world, both, both in Ireland and elsewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, that's pretty awesome. Um, so uh, did you have any uh, an inkling of some of this story like before you started like playing D&D? Like, do you want to play in like the Western genre or the fantasy genre? Did D&D really you know, kind of like, uh, I guess, re- reawaken that within you. 
And I guess what in particular was it about D&D? Was it just the camaraderie? Was it the role-playing aspect of it? Was you know something else? When it came to the fantasy genre, fantasy was a genre when I first began writing, because I've always been writing in, in some shape or form, you know, from the minute you know you were told you could write a short story in, in English class and get credit for it. Like I was writing short stories and I was writing all sorts of stories. And I always had this idea of wanting to write a fantasy novel because again, I had grown up at a time where the fantasy novel and the high fantasy stuff had just picked up steam again. Sure. And I was reading all that stuff and it was like that for years, like that was the only thing I read, you know, it was fantasy novels and, and uh, other kind of YA night, like, things like you know, before, as I was growing up. Uh, and I, I, at many points I tried to write a, a fantasy novel and kind of break into, to, to a fantasy world in that sense. And for whatever reason, it just, it never clicked. I think I was too focused on the world building at all and thinking that, you know, I had to have, you know, the, the Tolkien style map built right. out in my head before I could put words to paper. Yeah, or you had to, create your own, had to create your own language, had to, exactly. you, you had, had was, to develop all the lore. Exactly. I kind of had that fear like, well, I have to, it has to be an epic, you know, for it to be an epic fantasy or it has to be, that's be some kind of high art to it to be a high fancy book. I think I had that preconception to a large point, but I think, uh, so in terms of like, there was never like an early version of this back from when I was 16, not this book at, at the very, very least. Uh, like you hear Joe, Joe Abercrombie, who writes the first law series of fancy novels. Like he talks about the fact that he wrote a version of that when he was 20. And then it was only when he was 35, that he was actually ready to write the book that everyone finally saw. But for this, I think it was more, I think it was more so that when I started playing D&D with that friend group, I think it made me realize one kind of, you know, it conceptualized the idea of, you know, well, what kind of, what is a fantasy hero? You know, what, what, when we look at them carefully, what, what are they actually doing? Uh, but I think more so it was like, it was the, the idea that fantasy could be, a fantasy story could be small scale that it didn't have to be an epic or a world-ending plot. It can just be, it can be inter, interpersonal stories. It can be the individualistic story. And the world doesn't have to be ending for there to be stakes. If your own personal world is about to end, or if that, there's a threat to that own personal world, that can be just as epic as anything else. So that was something that... And I think it was just from playing, because even if, like even having watched you know Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire stuff that had come up around that time too, like that was that was still you know world shattering. There was still the epic fantasy to that. Whereas I think playing D and D made me realize that they can be these personal stories too, and that was really kind of the focus going into this. And that there is a world here, you know, there is things. If you look for it, you can see the the trappings, but really, it's about one small town. And one woman's relationship to that town and trying to keep a hold of it and keep a hold of that life as long as she can. And that is all it needs to be. You know, and if it, it's set in a fantasy world, but really that's the, the core of it. The core of it is a, it, it, it doesn't have to be a fantasy world. This could be equally in whatever setting you want it. It could be sci-fi, it could be modern day. The thing that the core of the story would be the same. This just so happens to take place against the backdrop of a high fancy world. Yeah. No, I like that. What you said about um, 
thinking that it had to be like epic and that it could be small scale, but the stakes are still hugely important, you know, to Maeve, to the town, um, to whatever it might be. But that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I never played D and D when I was younger. I didn't, I, I've played now for, we didn't play much the past year, to be honest, but uh, I started playing in 2017, um, having never played before, but always wanting to. Like, I kind of was familiar with it. I was aware of it. And uh, I really enjoyed playing with, you know, a group of friends, you know, uh, over the past couple of years. Um, and, yeah, we you, you follow. I like the aspect of D&D following like a general story. But half the time we end up just being murder hobos and just, you know. <laughs> Uh, wreaking havoc. Um, but I like, I've always enjoyed the role playing aspect of it because I've, you know, created a character very different than myself, which is what, you know, I enjoy playing out like the scenes. Like, did you find in creating your like own personal character to play D&D, did you create somebody that's pretty close to, you know, Gary Maloney or did you really let your uh, creative side go in fleshing out the character that you were going to play for the sessions and somebody very different? I think a lot of the time when it comes to role-playing games, it's not that I'm creating someone who's who's Gary Maloney, but I kind of try to, like, I don't tend to go for the powerhouse characters. I tend to do for, like, a charisma-heavy heavy build, you know, that if I can talk my way out of a situation, you know, that's what I'll do. Uh, now, how different is that from Gary? You know, that's probably a bit of me, you know, trying to, again, as you said earlier, I'm, I'm a barrister, so that talking way my way out of my pro- problems is kind of what I do in day in day, and day life. Uh, so I think for a lot of it, I was I, I I I in more recent times I've tried to make characters that are more different from me. But I think it's mo- a lot of times when I was starting off at least, I was like, okay, well, what would I do in this scenario? Obviously, with whatever backstory we've grappled onto, you know, you know, if I decide I'm going to be, a ha- I think my first campaign I was a half elf wizard. You know, obviously I don't have that, but I think. That character was someone who studied a lot, who had, you know, who was very much head in the books for a lot of, a lot of times, uh, and then would try to talk their way out of things. So there was there was definitely an element of me in that, uh, and I think I've I've what I've enjoyed more recently is trying to break out of that, that kind of you know that approach to things. But I think a lot of the time when it came to either tabletop role playing or playing characters in video games, whether it's kind of Baldur's Gate style game, Dragon Age, Knights of the Old Republic. I would tend to kind of do someone that tried to talk their way out of things, which is probably close close to what I would do in real life if I was in yeah. found myself in those fantastic scenarios. Yeah, um, uh, I my my character that I, I've only ever like the the campaign that we've done. I've only ever been one character who is uh, because I'm short. Well, I mean, than my friends, but five six. Uh, so I was a halfling rogue. Um, I like the idea, but my my character. I think at least, uh, you know, was a bit of a thief and a, a con man. And, um, and I, I always, I would like to think that as an attorney, I can talk my way out of things, but I think my skills lie more so in like mediation and getting folks to, you know, see the, the outcomes being played out. My character was just not anxious, which I think is my biggest personality trait as an attorney is my anxiety. <laughs> So I wanted to create a character that just did not deal with that at all, was very confident going into the situation, no matter whatever it was, which I, I found kind of cathartic or maybe a little therapeutic playing D&D. Oh, definitely. I mean, you hear a lot about, there's a lot written these days about D&D groups in different rehabilitation sessions and how good that can be. 
yeah. uh, whether it's in a prison context or even I saw recently in an old folks home uh, that, that they were they were introducing D and D and finding that that was helping people, particularly those that are having memory issues and things like that. Oh wow! So it's like like it's it, like there is clearly a therapeutic benefit to to role playing and the storytelling that come that you do when you're in in that kind of a setting. That yeah. I love that. That makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense, and I I like I like that D and D being used in in that that kind of fashion. Um, so how's it been like working with Mad Cave? I mean, I think from listening to your other podcasts with uh, other Mad Cave creators, you won't find a dissenter here. I think Mad Cave are fantastic uh, when it comes to finding a publisher that's acting as a partner and a true partner because. In, in this game, you hear a lot of horror, horror stories oh, of sure. different publishers and all that. Uh, and you'll have heard those yourself. But like Mad Cave from day one have just been the most supportive bunch in terms of, you know, helping me craft the story uh, and to refine it. Uh, but also letting us as a team explore different things and explore different avenues. Uh, and they had been very upfront from the start, you know, that they that they believe in this book and they believed in us as a team and wanted to help us get the, make the best version of when the blood has dried. And they have always been totally up, transparent, great communicators. And as I said, very supportive throughout the entirety of the process. So we've been working on this for, for about a year at this point. So we, we initially got an offer and we're in talks in late 2022. We locked everything in in January of last year. So we've been working on this for, for a long time. So I've had an opportunity to have, you know, a full working year with them and to see, you know, how, they, how, how it works in practice. And James B. Emmett, who's our editor on the book, has been lovely, nothing but a champion, uh, an advocate for the book. And the entirety of the publishing side of things, the editorial staff and the marketing staff have just been wonderful wonderful collaborators and i think sometimes that the idea of the publisher as a collaborator isn't spoken about as much as it should be but they 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 get it they get it that you know when when the book succeeds when the team succeeds everyone succeeds and it's very very clear they're they're focused on helping their on their creators and acting in a true partnership with their creators yeah i mean i i First, you know, started reading Mad Cave um, just because I was interested in, you know, some of the books they had out. And, um, you know, but starting the podcast or Byron starting the podcast and, and, and working on it and trying to line up interviews. Mad, Mad Cave, I just really, they're very easy to deal with in terms of like this aspect of it, like, you know, helping to coordinate to get their, uh, you know, creators on the podcast to get me materials to review for the interviews. And, um, you know, I met a few of them at the, when they were at Baltimore Comic-Con that I go to, you know, every year. And I th- I met James and I met Chaz Pangburn and a, a few others. And they're just very easy to work with, at least from this side of it. And I'm, I'm only just, you know, talking to them and getting interviews set up. But yeah, I just, everyone that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to quite a few like Mad Cave uh, creators uh, have had nothing but wonderful things to say about them. So uh, I'm glad that we're continuing that streak. <laughs> yeah i mean they, they've just been brilliant and like like creators talk so if there were issues you know and 
like it it is a it is a a real true sign of you know the the publisher itself that as you say anyone you speak to has nothing but good things to say about them all right let's take a quick break what in the sam hill is happening right now what is that you like bards yeah oh you like band of bards it's not my fault you mumble that makes sense they're dropping some great new series right now there's that one about a heavy metal guitarist in the 1970s with monsters working class wizards you know how we love monsters around here and my friend dakota brown he's working on a project uh grandma tilly's hell tech mech with lane lloyd i saw the preview for that that is crazy Jimmy even contributed to their anthology from the static and had Matt Sumo on the podcast to talk about his project, The Bardic Verses, which makes a lot of sense that the project landed there. Where can you find them? You need to get out more. They are in previews or you can visit their website, bandabards.com, for all the latest. Can we turn the music off now? Thank you. No more surprises, minstrels or anything like that, or I'll rent you out to the Ren Fair as a children's ride. Let's get back to the show. Well, I wanted to kind of turn into something you you said earlier about ever since you could write stories and 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 we're told that yeah, you can write a short story, you could do this. You've been um you've been doing that. Um and so what did you ever consider like pursuing that professionally? How did how did young uh Gary Maloney, you know, writing short stories end up as a, a barrister at law? I mean, I was all like, I've always, you know, wanted to write. And in the back of my mind, you know, like from when I was in, like pr- even when I was in primary school, I was writing, you know, novels and adverted comments. Like one of the first big projects I ever took on, like I, I did an adapt, like uh, I wrote a version, an adaptation of the Saiyan saga, like from Dragon Ball Z. Like I wrote a, no- a prose version of that when I was like. You did a novelization was, of Dragon Ball Z. I, I did it. a novelization because <laughs> I think at the same time, like there was like Pokemon novelizations coming out at the same time because Pokemon was big. And so they were doing like novelizations of episodes. So I was like, oh, I could do a novelization of Dragon Ball Z. I love Dragon Ball Z. So I started like, you know, doing things like that, but then doing more original stories. So I was always kind of, and I was entering, and as I was going, growing up, there'd be writing competitions. Uh, that I'd enter. So there'd be competitions in the local library, competitions in the county library that I'd put in for and I would I would often, you know, do quite well in them. Uh, one of the things when I was 15 that my lo- that the Cork City Library did was that they started a graphic novel project, which is they got professional writer, uh, there was an application process where young writers could submit, you know, their reasons why they wanted to be in the program. And what they did was they got a professional writer and a professional artist to come in and coach you over a couple of weekends. And the idea was that you'd be teamed up with someone on the art side of things and you would put together a comic. So I did my first comic in that context in like 2008, oh, uh, wow. 2007, 2008. Can't, That's uh, awesome. But like, but that, and that, that project is still going. So like that was like, what, 16, 15 years ago. And the Cork City Library has been doing that every single year since. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you that's a good comic, but what I did tell show me is like you know oh well this is what a script looks like and this is what how you match the script to the art and some of the kind of basic things there so i always wanted to to write and like you know saw some avenue of you know professional element to it but i was also you know quite a realist and you know uh irish 
Irish mothers can be quite certain about those things. Going, yeah, you can do all the writing you want, but you're still going to college. You're still like you're you, you want to have a fallback in case any of this doesn't work out. And when it came to you know the kind of subjects that I was good at in school, I was good at things like English and history, where you could write essays, you could you know make arguments and things like that. And there was times there where I was thinking about becoming a teacher and going down that path. But I did work experience. Uh, you do it as part of the Irish school program where you spend kind of two weeks uh, on work experience. And so I knew I, I did debating as well in, in secondary school. Uh, and so that kind of, you know, was the element of going, well, lots of people who went on, who did debating went on to become lawyers. I was like, well, I can have a look at that and explore that. And so I did one week of my work experience with a solicitor, one week with a barrister. And I found the advocacy, the trial advocacy of being a barrister, uh, that spoke to me more. And so I decided that I'd look, I'd try to pursue uh, law as a career. And even when I was studying law in college, I was writing for various websites, comics websites, or writing for the the college paper. Like the writing never left. but it was always in tandem with the law. And the law is something I love and I love, you know, practicing. It's something that, that I really, really enjoy. And I think it's very, very important, uh, particularly the, the type of work that I, I tend to do. But uh, the, writing, the writing side of things has always been there. And it's never something that I, I wanted to give up or completely abandon. But it was always about trying to find the opportunities and finding the time to devote to it uh, when there were other considerations and other things that I had to do. But I, I think in terms of, you know, I mean, if you look at how many creators in comics have a law background in some shape or form, I think a lot of the times that the skills you learn from law, being able to present, you know, ideas, being clear in communication, present a narrative in some sense. Obviously, there's not a one-for-one transition, but they, they clearly work interchangeably. There's a there's an appreciation or something there that allows people to who have that legal background to connect creatively. And comics is just one of those many, many avenues. Yeah, I enjoy talking to the the creators that I that I, I have who, you know, have that type of um the legal background. Uh just just in, indulge me because I know David Hazan, I think, tried to tell me um in terms of Australia, but just so what is the difference for anyone who's curious with a barrister and a, a solicitor in terms, you know, how things uh, play out in Ireland. So one way to look at it is like that a solicitor is not a trial attorney. A barrister is a trial attorney. Okay. Or another way to look at it is that if you like, if you compare it to a medical context, if you're sick and there's something wrong with you, you go to your GP, you go to your local doctor first. And then if there's something that they need to check up on, or requires expertise beyond what they have, you get sent to a specialist. And barristers are really kind of specialists because they tend to be focused on one or two different fields that you go to them for a particular advice uh, that you wouldn't necessarily have if you're a general practitioner, which a solicitor would be more likely to be. So you would come to someone who has particular knowledge of immigration asylum or particular knowledge of personal injuries cases or things like that. So the the barrister is yes, you know, trained to be the expert in the advocacy side of things, but also tend to have a subject matter that they would be known to deal with. Okay, and so, um, but barrister in terms of is more so at least can do the trial advocacy, can can yeah, can handle the trial and um, 
uh, still wear the the robes and the the wigs. <laughs> still wear the ro- robes. You're you're allowed to wear the wigs. I personally don't. Uh, but yeah, you, they're the kind of theatrical side of things where you've got the the robes, you've got the the tabs and things like that. Uh, so you know, it, you go around and you almost like have a, have a cape billowing behind you as you're <laughs> you're rocking into court. Uh, but yeah, that, that, the the idea is both solicitors and barristers could appear in court and could argue in court. Uh, there's no difference in the right of audience, but the idea is that barristers are trained to do that and to focus on advocacy more so than solicitors would be necessarily. Oh, okay. And I, what? So, what type of area of law are you in now? Uh, I'm primarily kind of human rights, so oh, wow. immigration, asylum, things, uh, anything where. I, I'm saying that the state has done something bad and that they should stop doing that thing tends to be what I do. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I also saw that you lecture as well. So there's that, that idea of becoming a, a teacher in there. So um, yeah, still, I, I, I mean, I, I, in terms of law subjects. Yeah, I, I did. I, I kind of, I've always, I kind of kept the, the one idea in teaching as well. So I, I teach uh, human rights law and public international law. So the law of you know everything that's kind of happening in the world and the law of the UN and things like that. Uh, but I but I originally back in the day one of the first jobs I ever had was teaching windsurfing, as you mentioned, as you hinted at earlier. So <laughs> despite the fact that I was always kind of going down the law path, I always wanted to kind of keep a hand in teaching as well. And you, you find that a lot with with, with barristers because all bar- barristers are all self employed in Ireland. Uh, so they, they'll often be doing teaching as well to supplement their income or do other, other things. Uh, what do you, so it's, what do you mean well, by that? They're all like self-employed, like in terms of like, we have law firms here. I mean, well, uh, do barristers we have, have firms or are you no, guys all no, freelance? Bar- solicitors don't, solicitors have firms, barristers are all freelance. Uh, really? It's, it's one of the rules of, co- the, just one of the rules that you have to be independent. Uh, it, it's called the independent referral bar. So in order to be a barrister, you have to be, you have to be self-employed. So, it's a uh, huh. yeah, and and so, all the, the the tribulations that that creates, right? So so in terms of like you know here in the U.S., like four or five attorneys are all doing personal injury, and they're like, hey, we could we would we could share overhead, we could um you know pool our resources, we could maybe get a break on malpractice insurance. We're going to form you know the firm of to bar from the Three Stooges. Do we cheat them and how? Uh, <laughs> So barristers, you and two other barristers could not do that in Ireland. No, like we have like the bar, the bar council is kind of a group that kind of oversees barristers and like gets kind of collective deals and stuff, you know, okay. means you don't have to pay for your, for your Westlaw subscription directly. You know, you can get the, the databases packages together and, you know, deals on the insurance and things like that. But every, every individual barrister is a sole trader. And, and that, oh. that is a requirement. You, you do a year's apprenticeship called deviling but everyone is and so you might have connections and they might have support through that and through your colleagues like it's very collegiate collegiality focused profession everyone kind of looks out for each other but in principle you're on your own wow i did not uh, uh know that so um all right well uh, we'll turn back to comics uh so comics. For, but but <laughs> listeners i uh, you know, you've you if you've listened to the David Hazan, the David Boer episode, Emily Witten, Mar- even Mark Guggenheim, um, we all talked about. Mark, was he one of us? I didn't realize that. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, okay. before before his shows on the CW and and his comics, um, 
Because obviously yeah, I know Charles Soule was an attorney for ages, oh, Char- but I didn't, yeah. realize, I didn't realize Mark was. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, before his work with the the CW and his comic work, he was uh, an attorney for a little bit, and then he eventually oh, cool. went. I think I'm remembering from his episode. He, he then he went out to, uh, I think he went. He was in maybe Chicago, New York, or Chicago, and then went out to LA. Um, yeah, because we started off talking about how I really like. I think I think he worked on, and it was I think it only lasted two seasons, but there was a um, a law show that uh, Eli Stone that was. Uh, I remember out. that. That that he had he had worked on, um, and uh, yeah, I really liked I really liked Eli Stone. That was a a lawyer, um, who had a brain tumor, and then he he, he saw like fantastical God. scenes. Yeah, and it was yeah. and then he he would see George Michael all the time, and like people would break out into George Michael, you know, uh, like flash mob dance stuff that was kind of all in his head, but. Yeah, in any event. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's quite a there's 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 quite a few. But um, okay, to, to turn back to comics, though, I wanted to yeah. talk, you know, before I let you go, a little bit about Limit Break and about like Limit Break comics for any folks that aren't familiar. It's a du- Dublin-based. I mean, I don't know if you guys consider yourself like a, a publisher or a comics collective, but you've you know put out a number of books. Um, with you, Paul Carroll, I think Gareth. Uh, Luby, if I'm saying Gareth's last name mm-hmm. correctly, um, and yeah, you know, in particular, you've done uh, anthologies for anyone listeners. If you're not familiar with it and you like anthologies, they have Turning Roads and Down Below, um, uh, Fractured Realms, and then they've just solicited submissions uh, or pitches for the the fourth anthology. So, kind of, um, you know, how, how have things been going with like Limit Break and kind of what's like. Uh, the future of, of limit break, if you will, if you can talk about that, because I'm oh, kind of curious and I really like the stuff that's been put out so far. Oh no, definitely. And like, thank you as all, you've always been a great like supporter of limit break throughout the years. And the, the anthology is like limit break came about from when back in 2018, when I was starting to put together that collection of short stories, one of the first people I met amongst the, the Dublin comic community were, were Paul Carroll and Garrett Luby. And at the time, they had started off doing their own uh, book series, you know, called Meowch, which was their uh, cat assassin uh, character right. that they created. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was starting to put together my first couple of shorts, I'd run the scripts by them and be like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And we were like, oh, well, we really enjoyed doing that. And we'd meet up together and have, have drinks and talk about comics, the process, the craft, but also what we were reading. And so... I, when I decided I was going to put together my little anthology, uh, Paul decided he was going to do one too. And the idea of Limit Break came about as, as a way to, and we, we consider ourselves more of a collective, you know, because we, while we do the open pitches and the open submissions for the anthologies, you know, it's, it's not a sort of thing where we're, we're constantly looking for new books to come in or things like that. Uh, if people bring books to us and, they're, and they tend to be friends, people we know, well, we can put it out, but he was really trying to find a structure whereby we could support each other. And if it means that if I was going to a con weekend, I could bring Paul's books and if Paul's going to a con, he could bring my books and vice and vice versa. And really kind of just provide a, a support structure for each other in, in a more formal way. And that, that's how, how it began. Uh, and that's really how, how it, how it remains to these days. Uh, the pandemic kind of changed things because we, we started going to thought bubble 
and we would go over and we, the Thought Bubble is a great show in Leeds. We used to be in Leeds now in Harrogate, uh, a comics festival in the UK, which is really, really cool and really kind of creator focused. And we'd be going over there and we'd be talking to all these different creators. And inevitably, like the idea of like, oh, we should do anthologies of this or we should do anthologies of that. And Paul started throwing around the idea of, oh, we'll do an Irish folklore anthology. And the pandemic hit. And so the first, during the, when the pandemic hit then, that gave Paul the time to put together Turning Roads, the first book, which was science fiction fantasy spins on Irish folklore and Irish mythology. And that did well. We funded that on, on Kickstarter. That did very, very well. And then afterwards we said, well, this seems to have done well. Why don't we try it again? And from there, down below, which was the Greek mythology crime stories, uh, came about and I and I was brought on as a co-editor on that because at that point I'd, I'd kind of become the crime writer amongst the group the person who knew the noir genre more so than most so when it came to the editorial process picking stories but also offering feedback uh, I could offer that expertise in a way that Paul who, who is kind of more fantasy and mythology focused uh, he'd be able to help with the Greek mythology side of things but the crime genre element was, was less so and we've just been do- doing that ever since. On a yearly basis, we put out a call normally in late December uh, and January for submissions for a mythology-themed anthology. Uh, so it's always mixing one kind of classic mythology or folklore with a ge- another genre. So the first three books were all the kind of the classic classic mythology, Irish folklore, Greek mythology, Norse mythology for fractured realms, and with Wish Upon a Star, we're kind of starting a new air of that which is to look at kind of more modern elements of mythology so for wish upon a star it's fairy tales and mixing fairy tales with sci-fi elements uh, and we'll be doing similar things going forward as well uh, and the idea is to have different books that kind of look at more mythology but more kind of modern ideas of mythology including cryptids uh which fits <laughs> into the topics of this podcast so jimmy sure. i'll be expecting a pitch uh from yourself and or or byron now you'll 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 get it. I mean, look, uh for listeners who like are interested in creating comics and that's why you listen to this because you want to hear what creators not only have coming out but when we get into why do we write? Why do we want to create? Why do we want to why are we artistic? Um uh, I love anthologies and the practice of pitching to them. Uh rejection is a, a huge part of any type of creative endeavor. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but if you usually if you want to like get somebody else to look at your work, you're you're going to run into rejection time and time again, and so you can't. You have to. Um, I think it was actually Andrew Irvine who uh, re- interviews is the interviews editor for Comic Book Yeti. I think interviewed you and Paul and Gareth in a written interview from October of 22. If any listeners want to go back and check that out, and I think it was something you said, Gary, in that. Um, I don't know. if maybe it was PJ Holden you took a class with and said something about like fail, you know, fail fast, uh, fail often, something along those lines of like, just get it out of the way. You're going to get rejected. And yeah, I mean, I've pitched to down below and fractured realms and I've submitted, I think I submitted five pitches to wish upon a star. uh, But, but look, they could all, all five could just get rejected. It's just a part of it. And you just got to keep going. The one I like for down below, I liked my idea. So I made it. I worked with Rachel, exactly. uh, Alan Everett, uh, Harry Saxon, and Buddy Bedoin. And, you know, now I have a four-page story that, you know, I like. And uh, it's anyone wants a sample of the kind of stuff I do, I can show them. 
But, you know, it's just I like trying to come up with something. I, I find it very difficult to to pitch to anthologies to try and fit a story, you know, with whatever whatever the brief might be. Um, and telling a four page story is tough. You have to introduce your characters, introduce the conflict and resolve it in four pages. It is not an easy task. So being no. able to being able to work that muscle and and do it. And, you know, um, yeah, like for down below, uh, noir meets Greek mythology. I had an idea to take Aeschylus's seven against Thebes and set it in 1980s Philly mob war. So I have a four page comic, seven against Philly. I mean, the best thing about it other than the art and coloring and lettering might be the title <laughs> in terms of what I, I, I do. Like <laughs> but, you know, um, I just really appreciate that you guys do this, especially for the comics community, especially that it's an open call. Anybody can put their team together and put in a pitch and anthologies are a great way. If you want to start creating comics and figuring out coming up with an idea that fits the brief, being able to outline it or pitch it or do a story breakdown and tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end in four pages. Um, I, I just think what you guys do every year for creators, you know, writers, artists, colorists, letterers, is fantastic that you're still doing this. And I'm I'm excited that they've all been, you know, successful. That you know you've been able to crowdfund them and um, high praise for you know turning roads. Certainly, um, I love down below. I thought it was phenomenal. So I you know I, I can't wait to see what ends up with uh, Wish Upon a Star. Yeah, well, fingers crossed we, we can pass that Kickstarter threshold. But no, really, thanks so much. Like, I, I really, like yourself, I, I love short stories. I love the four-page format. Like, I think, like, comics as a as a medium is all about the economy of storytelling because you have, you know, every page is a particular unit. Every double-page spread has a particular purpose. And, you know, the act of the page turn is vital in that context. So the, the four-page story was something that P.J. Holden uh very much was advocating for that. If you're starting off, whether it's writing, drawing, do four pages. One, because you'll finish them and you'll get better by finishing. And it could be a good story, it could be a bad story, but at least it's finished and now you can learn from that, particularly if you put it out there in the world and get feedback. on. But also it kind of teaches you how comics work in a very condensed way. It's the reason why the likes of 2000 AD use the Future Shock, which is a four-page format, to bring in new writers and bring in new artists because it teaches you to be to use that space efficiently. You don't have time, as you say, you don't have time to be messing around. You've got to get in, introduce the character, what their problem is, and then tell them whether they're going to succeed or not and what that teaches us about them. So do it, I, I think sometimes that you often see, because I think the anthologies, while they're big in the indie side of things and say the, the crowdfunding space, you don't see them as much in the direct market, and there are various reasons for that. But I think the short story in comics is is a form that perhaps should be looked at a bit more, uh, and particularly for what it can offer and the storytelling opportunities it can offer. Uh, obviously, twenty page stories are great, but I think you know if you get a good short story, like often those stay with you more so than the twenty page issue you just read. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree. Um, in preparing for this interview, I was going back, like through, uh, you know, googling Gary Maloney and and various and sundry other things, and going like looking through your oh, Twitter. And I, no, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> no, no, I, only because you had shared an article, I think that was in the Guardian or something from 2010, 
about the Irish short story. And I started to take a look at it and I was, um, that was this got, morning. It was literally this morning. Was it this morning? I think it was, was just this morning. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, it was, it was this morning I was looking at it, but Anne Enright, I guess the Irish short story from, from an article from 2010. And I just started mm. to take a look at it to see what it was about. And I ended up reading the, the, <laughs> the whole article because I was kind of, you know, fascinated with, um, you know, what it had to say about uh, the Irish short story in particular, um, which I found it a very, uh, a very good article. And it, it made me want to read the, uh, the short story anthology that was being talked about, I guess, that was, was being put together in terms of Irish short stories, because I, I love, love short stories um, and love collections of short stories and love, you know, comics anthologies. Um, well, actually, one of the things my 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 wife had got me, I think, last Christmas that I read on our vacation this past summer was Appendix N, which is I, I can't remember who put it together, but it's a, a list of short stories that are similar to what Gary Gygax, who created Dungeons and Dragons, said influenced him. But it was a uh, somebody else. It's I can't remember where the book is. I, I'd grab it, but it's called Appendix, Appendix N. N. Okay. Appendix N. I think it has an intro by Patton Oswald, and the the person who put it together was looking at some of the original stories, and including some of them, and maybe some other ones that kind of fit the mold. So short fantasy stories that kind of influenced uh, Gary Gygax when he was like in the creation of you know D and D in those early uh, player manuals. But uh, it was fantastic, fantastic short stories. I I really enjoyed it um but yeah i I ended up reading that whole article about the irish short story and um i just found it very fascinating so i gotta i gotta find out the i gotta go double check on what that title is because now i want to go read um uh whatever anthology or collection of short stories that was being put together it was a really good article yeah no i think the irish short story or the short story in ireland is given a lot of weight like it was something that Joyce did. It's something that a lot of them, like Frank O'Connor is celebrated internationally for his short stories. Uh, so it's like, and it's something that like, I think people think a lot about in Ireland, the idea of the short story from, from at least from the literary side, side of things. Uh, and I, yeah, I suppose there's a part of me that just thinks that perhaps we need to have a look at that a bit more in comics than we have historically. But like that being said, like, like when the blood is dried is something that is the longest thing I've written. Uh, I've done a one shot before, but I, it's the longest thing I've written. And I think ha- having known what you can do in four pages, that helps you then when you g- are given that extra space, because then you can use it more effectively than you would necessarily otherwise. It, what is it? Um, is it five issues? It's it's five issues. Uh, oh, nice. The idea is like that. It's five issues, self-contained story. Like I said earlier, th- there is a world there. There's a wider, you know, universe and you know if it does well maybe we'll come back and look at that as well but i i wanted to to do and we wanted to do a, a very contained story that gives you your beginning middle and end focuses on the characters and this kind of slow burn exploration of a life of violence and then if if that's all it is that's all it is and that's all it needs to be uh but and, and i think we're happy with where we, we've ended up at this point uh with the with the five issues and I said, if it does well, you know, maybe there's something else in that world. You know, there'd be something. So that that is something that you know, we're, that I'd be interested in doing. But the, this is when the blood is dried is Maeve's story, and it's all about 
whether or not she can save that little her, her pub, save the, the, the lock-in tavern and keep the life that she has maintained for herself over five years. Well, uh, yeah, and I can't I can't wait to see how it all plays out, because like I said, I absolutely loved issue one. Um, you know, you're writing Daniel Romero. Uh, artwork is just incredible. And like I said, the rest of the team, Becca Carey's phenomenal letter, loved their work. Um, so uh, very, you know, very exciting. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of putting because you said about, you know, this is the longest thing you've written when you know, are you somebody that like outlines? Did you did you have it? Like, did you have the idea first in terms of the pitch or did you like have like a long form outline before you start scripting? Uh, when it comes to my process, uh, I te- for, for when the bill is dried, I did an, an outline, but it wasn't a an in-depth outline. Uh, it was I did, I had the general idea, the general theme and things like that. Uh, and then I had an issue by issue breakdown, which was here's what happens in the issue. But it wasn't a granular page by page breakdown okay. it was just kind of a general sense of what happens in the issue uh i think i do a lot a lot of my kind of process uh, i do longhand so i would have done i have a notebook that has the initial i character ideas for when the blood has dried it has the initial uh i always do the first draft of the script longhand as well uh so that yeah, it, i might be changing panels panel numbers or i might be changing the description might be very short in that version whereas there might be more more flavor in the in the final version that goes out to the artist i don't like to dictate you know in the right hand corner there is a box or there's a gun on the wall unless right. i need the gun to be shot obviously yeah, uh, yeah unless like, three panels later you're gonna yeah you're gonna need exactly. chekhov's gun to fire you need to tell the artist it's there <laughs> <laughs> exactly but, but i like giving them the sense of like well here's you know the tone we're trying to get across here's what the characters are feeling right now yeah. Uh, things that allow the, the Daniel or allow any artist kind of just inform that into, into their work, uh, and so I, I will do. I think a lot of the work gets done while there's a general outline. Uh, it gets done in that initial heart that that pay, longhand form where I'm kind of working through the script and I can cross things out and change them more readily. And then, so when I'm writing it up, then afterwards, uh, it's a much more polished version. And so. I, I, I'm not fully going by the seat of my pants, but I'm not. I'm not a gardener either. I'm not just you know like I'm not planning everything out meticulously. Uh, right. I, I know where I want to go, and I have a general sense of the tone I want or a particular image I want. But I think a lot of it gets gets worked out on the page itself. You still give yourself a little bit of freedom if, like, you know, you 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 think of something that could go a different way. You're, you're still able to, or you're still able to kind of work that in within the framework that you've created. Yeah. I mean, like when I'm, when I was pitching when the blood is dried, there was the, it, it accompanied, it was the five issue breakdown. And so that would have been a page long, but a kind of a paragraph for each issue. Uh, and we didn't stray utterly from that. The, the purpose of each issue, the main beats of issue are still there, but the moments in between, I leave myself space for that. Uh, and I leave myself space to find moments where I can give the characters, you know, quiet time and just allow them to reflect on things. Because I think that that's important in, say, a, a, a story like this, which is about, you know, which is, is, is a Western in tone, even if it's aesthetically a fantasy, that yeah. you give those characters time to to reflect on everything, you know, and to... Because uh, it's one of the things I like about Cowboy Bebop, 
uh, actually, it's a, and it, Cowboy Bebop was very much a thing, something I was thinking about when I was writing this book. The idea of, you know, one, it's an epilogue uh, to a story you don't see. You know, you don't see the the main life that Spike and the others had before they're on the Bebop. You just kind of see the last, the last of their development. But also so much of the Cowboy Bebop, the, the best moments are when they're just sitting around on the ship smoking cigarettes and they're just, you know, reflecting on everything that's happened to them. So I kind of try to give leave space for that where I can uh, and to give myself space to put in scenes that I think are necessary or character moments that wouldn't necessarily belong in an outline either. Uh, to g- it gives you a structure, it gives, it gives, you know, and it tells the publisher the important things they need to know. Uh, and then when it comes to those other character moments, those are things that you can discover on the page. So it doesn't feel like you're writing it twice because that can sometimes be boring, but it gives you some still some some sense of discovery and i think that's important in writing oh yeah i i agree i i agree that's uh that's fascinating to hear and i you know i appreciate you kind of breaking that down i think um i'm always curious as to how different writers you know kind of like their process or kind of you know how they how they approach storytelling or at least you know at the very least scripting but um uh, well, the the only other thing I wanted to mention is uh, my my brother Bobby, who's the Cryptic Creator Corner's number one most dedicated listener. Uh, I, I say that every episode, uh, but Bobby does listen to all my episodes, and a lot of times uh, he he will buy the comics. So, um, so if there's any other creators who are going to be on the podcast in the future, um, Bobby, if he likes the episode, he does go and add your comic to the pull list. So, um, but yeah, we will be in Ireland uh, for my 45th birthday. So. If you're around uh, March 8th or March 9th, I'll be in Dublin, Gary. <laughs> oh, definitely. No, we, we are going for, for drinks. You know, we're going to, because again, it took us long enough to organize this. So hang on, is it, yeah. it's uh, 8th and the 9th you're here, is it? Yeah, yeah. We fly into Shannon on the, se- well, we leave Philly on the 7th. I think we land March 8th and we're going to stop for somewhere at, at, at lunch and then we'll be the night of the eighth. And then the night of the, uh, the ninth, I think we're going to be in Dublin. So, well, you do realize that the, that the ninth is Dublin comic-con weekend. So uh, you're actually, no, 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 I did not realize that. Right time. Well, I will All have the to look creators are going to be in Dublin for, uh, the, for the weekend. So, well, I, I will have to check that out. I did not realize that. Um, yeah, we, uh, Serendipity so is a great thing. It is. It is. Uh, I like when that. Uh, I like when that happens. A little bit of luck never hurts, you know. Uh, well, Gary, I really appreciate uh, you you spending my morning and your your afternoon with me to talk about this. Uh, I think listeners, I I mean, I you hear me talk about the comics, and I'm I I, t- I trend I tend to be very complimentary because I have folks on here that I want to talk to because I <laughs> like their comics and. But, but seriously, when the blood is dried, um, in terms of a fantasy story, Western elements, I and Daniel Romero's artwork. I mean, look, even if you're like, I read Gary's stuff before it, and he's a crap writer. Well, get it for Daniel Romero's art. Also, you're wrong because Gary's made some great stuff. So, but uh, Daniel I, Romero's art, Marco <laughs> Rudy and Declan Shalvey's covers. Oh like, yeah. Mar- Mar- like Marco I, Rudy is our main cover artist for the series. So if you, yeah. uh, there's been a lot of, I think a lot of stuff said on Twitter at the moment about Marco's cover for the series, like, and they just get better. So yeah. even if you don't like me, Daniel's doing brilliant work on the inside and Marco's going to be there for the whole five issues. So yeah, 
I already added it to my pull list. And usually I'm, I, I'm not like a, I mean, I have a ton of comics, but I'm not like a, uh, well, I wouldn't call myself a collector. I get them because I like them and I like to read them. And mm. um, I get physical stuff just because my brother and I will go to Baltimore Comic-Con every year. And we like to get stuff signed and tell folks that, hey, I really liked your work. Um, but I did. Add, yeah. And the podcast. Uh, um, but I, uh, I, yeah, I did. I added like the A covers to my pull list, but I did get that Declan Shalvey B cover. Um because it's really, really good. <laughs> so that's it, awesome. It is very, very good. Uh, Declan has always been a good, good friend, uh, and was was kind enough to provide that cover. Uh, I don't have it here in this room, but uh, in the hallway, the original of Declan's cover is uh, hanging on me wall. So oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I just, I really love. It. I can't wait for other folks to get their hands on it. But um, yeah, you, you're listening to this podcast. Make sure you, you know. Either go to Mad Cave directly, I think you can get it, or tell your local comic book shop, add it to your pull list. If you're listening to this and you don't have a pull list, you, you know that most comic shops will let you set one up, and that way you make sure you get the stuff that you want. But um, the first issue is out April 3rd, when the blood has dried. Um, it's going to go, the title alone, I, I think, is, is awesome as well. I wanted to say it goes up there with There Will Be Blood and Rambo First Blood. I think my three favorite <laughs> titles of things with blood in it. But when the blood is dried, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to mention that earlier and I didn't have such a great sense of the story you're, you're going to get. I just love that idea of this is after something, you know, that idea of like when the blood is dried. And um, yeah, I really, really loved it. Uh, but I can't wait for other folks to read it. So, Gary, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate the time you to set aside on this. Uh, this what I'm hoping is a lovely Sunday morning in your part of the world. <laughs> well, um, it's not. It's rainy and gray, yeah. but uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna make the most of it on this on this Sunday here here in the you're, states. You're gonna, we have we have yeah. playoff well, football, so we have, we have I, playoff football going on today. I I will be following it later on myself. <laughs> uh, I was. Devastated when when the Bills blocked it last week. Oh uh, uh, yeah, that, that that was upsetting. But yeah. we'll get over it. Yeah, my um, uh, the the Philadelphia Eagles did had a great start to the year, ten and one, and then they lost six of their last seven and were knocked out of the knocked out of the playoffs. Because I'm in Delaware, but I grew up in uh, Delaware County, Pennsylvania. So, um, which it was uh, just south of Philly. So we're uh, we're I'm in a fancy league with a bunch of other comic creators, uh, and the. The, the 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 lack of the Philadelphia Eagles lack of of joy this year has uh, <laughs> has hurt me a lot in my in my fantasy stats this year. So yeah. I'm hoping for recovery next year, so I can at least uh, or at least I can just make a better team. <laughs> at yeah. that point, if I can't yeah, was expect a, a better team from them. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was just a lot of high hopes in the beginning of the year, going ten and one, and then I th yeah. I think it will probably end up going down as the worst collapse in Philadelphia Eagles history to lose six of the last seven so that's 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 a bit tough oh, one, speaking but, of sports though one of the things i'm really excited about when i come to ireland is my brother and i have tickets to see uh, a hurling match live we've never seen one live so i'm very excited to watch hurling i think you, we're seeing county Derry play county wicklow i i'm not going to comment on the quality of the <laughs> of, of, of said teams uh but uh, no, it, it's like hurling is great crack. It's the it's the fastest it's the fastest game on grass. Uh, and was it? I think Jatum Statham in some film refers to it as a cross between hockey and murder. 
<laughs> that's uh, great. It's, it's pretty vicious. Like it, yeah. like it's actually only relatively recently that they required them to wear helmets because they're going around with these ash stick, these wooden sticks made of ash, based in yeah. several different shades out of each other. Like, uh, yeah. and I, that's I, happening I, every single weekend across the country, from the the highest level to the lowest level, and on the lowest yeah. level, it can get very dirty. Yeah, I um. I, I had never heard about it until the first time I, I, I came to Ireland. I've been to Ireland twice in 2003 and 2005. So I had never heard of it before until I came in 2003 and would watch it on TV. And um, I just thought it was great. I, I got two of like the hurling sticks that I brought home with me. I have a County Limerick jersey from that time because that's where I was staying when I was first there. Uh, but never gotten to see a match live. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. I'll sort you out with a Cork jersey. So like oh, you're like, thank you. <laughs> so, so you'll have a proper team to support going forward. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, well, Gary, uh, thank you so much. And uh, best of luck on uh, when the blood is dried. I, I think folks, when they get it in their hands, they're going to love it. And uh, I wish you all the success, you and the rest of the creative team. And good luck to you and Paul. I think you had over 200 pitches for um, Wish Upon a Star. 224. So 224. Oh. Well, so good luck going through all of those. And um, yeah, I can't I can't wait to see uh, that because I like the idea of um, fairy tales and like this distant future sci fi stuff. So good luck getting all that sorted. But uh, thank you very much for coming on the, uh, the the program. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. All right. And everyone else, thanks for listening. And, uh, you know, if, if you like the podcast, please let us know. Remember, I'm I'm Irish, Italian, and a 50% Golden Retriever puppy, so I need to hear that you guys like this. All right? Thank you for listening, and definitely put When the Blood is Dried on your pull list. Go and get it April 3rd. All right. See you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.